Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track podcast. I'm your host, Hugh Whiffin. I hope you're all doing well today. So it's another week, which means it's another episode. And today's episode is with Mr. John Webster. I appreciate that many of you may not know who John is. Do not let that put you off. Um, I won't say too much. I'm, I'm desperate to tell you all about what John's done, but John will do that as the, as the podcast unfolds. But let's just say, from working behind the counter in a record store, John then went to pretty much as high as you can go within one of the biggest record labels in the world, worked with some of the most incredible artists and was pivotal in devising, setting up and making it happen two humongous things in music, things that are on your radar, on everybody's radar that listens to music and is interested in, in new music and bands and I can't wait for you to hear this, and uh, and it was an absolute joy. We we went to the the WeWork building in Devonshire Square to record this, so I should say thank you very much to my friend Ben Berlin for um, for letting us use his office space and uh, for introducing me to John. Um, you're going to absolutely love this chat. It was it was it was a real pleasure. Um, okay, so before uh, we get on with it, um, just a couple of things. There's a new magazine out called Pod Bible. You've probably heard me mention it before. You may well have heard Scroobius Pip mention it. Um, the reason being is that we've put it together with uh, our good friend Adam, who does all the artwork for uh, Pod Bible and does all the artwork for Off the Beaten Track podcast. And uh, it's a new essential guide to podcasts. Um, we have interviews with all sorts of people, Adam Buxton, Craig Parkinson, features on Jade Adams, and so much more. Um, if you haven't got hold of a, uh, a, a a print copy, then you can also read it digitally on www.podbiblemag.com. Please go and give that a look. We're on all the socials as well, so um, give us a follow. Um, whilst I mention Pip, I should say thank you to him and all the Distraction Pieces Network gang. Uh, massive thanks to my name is Ad for doing the artwork. Huge love as always to Mr. Seventy Six for producing this. I think we're done. Um, I have a Patreon. Just a quick heads up: I have a Patreon for this. So if you like these chats, um, I also do weekly radio shows and other exclusive releases on Patreon. 
and so you can go over there and, and by supporting that you're helping supporting uh, me doing this podcast uh, so any any interest and love over there is much appreciated um, you can find out about everything merchandise and normal releases patreon releases and everything else just go to www.offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com you've heard me speaking for way too long now let's get on with the podcast please enjoy off the beat and track with mr john webster i've got an announcement save our souls clothing www.sosclothing.co.uk why am i telling you this because they're our official sponsor yeah that's right go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale you're going to love it so they've decided they want to be our sponsor which is amazing and what i have to do is i have to tell you about why they're amazing so here's a little bit of blurb so they've only been going a year and they're based in South End on Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable, and water based inks. In addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off so if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15, B-E-A-T-1-5, and that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk official sponsors of Off The Beaten Track Podcast. Let's get back to that podcast. It's Off The Beaten Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. Okay, we are recording. We are at WeWork in East London, which is um, rather plush office block. And uh, a friend of mine, Ben, has... Um, given me his office today and has, has introduced me to today's guest and today's guest is music consultant a music consultant with a very rich history of which um we're gonna talk about throughout the duration of this podcast uh it's mr john webster good afternoon good afternoon um you all right i'm very well thank you yeah uh, just had a nice train journey dan i have had a train journey from ludlow where i now live yes yep. so we mentioned beforehand that that's on the borders of Wales. So, do you, is that kind of the part of Wales? Are we up near Snowdon? Is it that far no, up? No, 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 no. This is there's a, there's basically a valley that separates Wales from England that runs all the way up and down. And this is the only train line goes up and down mm -hmm. there, and the main road, and all the way down that are a number of towns that were built around castles that were built either to keep the Welsh out or the English in. Yeah. I can never remember which way round it was, and so there's it goes sort of Chester. Uh, Shrewsbury, 
Ludlow, Lempster, Hereford, and then it all goes from the top to the bottom. Yeah. And that I live in Ludlow, which is sort of the middle of that. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to... I've done a bit of research. I've Googled you. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> It's quite quite some story. You mentioned you're writing a book, so uh, I'm sure that's going to be quite something because uh, yeah, yeah, you've ticked a fair few boxes in the music industry, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I'm looking forward to, um, to to digging in on them. But as we know, this is all built around a, a playlist, mm. and and I kick things off always with the song with the greatest intro. And so I'll let you introduce the track that you chose. Well, this is not only the song with the greatest intro for me, this is my favourite song ever. Oh, really? Ever, yes. It is the, if I had to take one track to the Desert Island, I would take this track. Wow. And that's because um, I am a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. Um, he has completely um, shaped, I think, my music life. Uh, but this track... Uh, when I was trying to think of the intro, it's hard. It's one of those questions that you don't not often get asked. And there are the, the obviously Gimme Shelter uh, and the Chain Fleetwood Mac and things like that. There are the, and so I didn't really want to do that. And neither of those are my favourite tracks. But then I suddenly thought that this track, Thunder Road, which is my favourite track, um, it just, the intro is so plaintive and the harmonica is so... Um, I don't know, it just signals the opening of a song and then it gradually increases the speed very, very, and then banging you into the vocals and that's it. And that's why I love it. So, was you on board with Springsteen pretty much from the early point of his career? I was. I, well, not the first album, because I'm, I'm a bit of a... What's the word? When someone tells you to do something, I'll go in the opposite direction. Yeah. So when his first album came out, I remember reading the review, and everyone went, oh, it's the new Dylan. And was, oh, That's God, what he was hyped as, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, so I, I just ignored it. Uh, but I was a social secretary at university in Birmingham, and then I went to see the agent one day, who were an agency that was linked to CBS Records. And they go, oh, we've got this record just coming out. It's a second Bruce Springsteen album. And I went, oh, well... I haven't really heard him. So, uh, anyway, they gave me a copy of The Wild, The Innocent and The E Street Shuffle and I took it at home and I could not stop playing it. And to this day, I still absolutely love it. Um, I did actually... There was some tentative before he came over in 75. There was a bit of a tentative when the second album came out or maybe we'll bring him over because he'd never been outside America. Mm-hmm. And so I was offered him for, I think, 500 quid for a gig, which was a lot of money at those times. Particularly what, to put him on at the university? Yeah, particularly for someone who was not not known mm. at all. He was, you know, There was a few people who liked the first album and got into it, I think, but he was certainly not, not even one of those culty things like... Um, the classic cult band, I think, is Little Feet. Mm-hmm. You go to America and you talk about Little Feet, and they, all these people go, "Oh, Little Feet! Oh God! Oh, you Brits! That's, you really like them, yeah. don't you? We didn't like them. They meant nothing here, yeah. but but they meant more over here. And the, the more you still meet people who love Little Feet, and they are my second favorite band. Mm. But um, so anyway, I got into um, the second album and loved it. Then I bought the first album. And then I went to work for Virgin Retail when I left in 1975, and it came in on import. Uh, we had an import copy came in the shop. Uh, and I just remember playing, and of course the opening track is Thunder Road. And, mm. uh, and it was, but at the time, 
it was such a, a leap forward or different record than the first two. The first two yeah. he was finding his feet, I think, and obviously if you read the books, then Born to Run was he spent months making it, mm. making it and getting it. Right until it, until the I think as with so many artists they get they lose sight of it and the manager said it's finished yeah 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 I don't care whether you think it's finished it's finished yeah give it up and he did and that's what came out and it's a it's a fantastic record just to pick up as well on what you said that you started working at Virgin um, so behind the counter in a record shop yeah so I, I the first thing I do I mean. Uh, when I went to, when I chose where I went to universities, I chose places where there were Virgin record stores because I'd never seen one. Okay. And they were big cities, all right, Birmingham, yeah. Manchester, London. And the first thing I did, apart from go to the digs and go to the student union, was to go and see Virgin Records. And I wanted to find this funny, odd shop in not in the middle of Birmingham, and it was fantastic. And I fell in love with it. And uh, then I got to know them, and they used to sell tickets for me for the gigs and uh, gradually. Then I used to get free records because I started writing reviews for the student newspaper. This was, of course, wow, free records. And then, of course, I got sent some I didn't like, so you then got into the land of, oh, do you think I could swap these? Oh, yeah, yeah, two for one. That's standard thing, yeah. you know. Um, and that's, so that's, I just got to know them, and I used to work there. And then I left university. I had no career plan at all. I've never had a career plan. What did you study? I studied... Geography. Okay. Or as a dear friend of mine I've just discovered says to me, Oh, you did colouring in then? (laughs) 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 I've never heard that before. Because you meet all the other people who've done, um, what do they do? Theology and things like that. And you go, Oh, I'm looking forward to being in Starbucks then, are you? (laughs) (laughs) Because it is a. But geography, all my friends, most of them, they either went to teach it. Or they became general management trainees and they went to work for Master Spencer's and the last thing I wanted to do was get into a suit. So I didn't know what I was going to do. I literally didn't know what I was going to do. And I worked in the shop on the day in 1975 when the Pink Floyd played Nebworth. The shop staff all went to the gig, leaving the shop in charge of the Saturday guy and me and another guy. And it was a busy shop. Uh, And this weekly memorandum came around saying, we need an assistant manager in Hull, which, of course, is viewed by many as the arsehole of one of the arseholes of Britain. It wasn't. It was a nice place, actually. And I ran out on the Monday to the shop manager and said, do you think I can go for this? He went, we rang me back and said, go to a thing tomorrow and have an interview. And the interview consisted of, um, Tim says, you're all right, what music do you like? And we talked about music for an hour. And at the end of it, they said, can you be in Hull by next Sunday night? I said, sure. And that was it. So I took a temporary job whilst wondering what I was going to do with my life and never worked for anyone else for a long time that wasn't Virgin or myself. Okay, well, we'll, we'll pick back up because for people that aren't familiar with, with, with what you've done, then the, the story of your life at Virgin Records certainly doesn't finish here. It, 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 obviously, <laughs> it, 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 it really does move on at quite some pace. So we'll, uh, we'll pick back up on that um, as, as, as this podcast unfolds. But for track two... The first song that you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you? Mm. Well, this is this is my favourite single. If I had to take a single, because Thunder Road wasn't a single, if I had to take a single, this would be it. And this is, uh, in many ways, a perfect record. And 
I was, you know, you're at that age when you're into everything. Everything's coming out, and you just want to try listening to. You go back and find blues stuff that you never knew of, and your old friend's elder brother's got a big Bill Briggs yep. record, and all this stuff like that. And I grew up with show tunes on the radio and things like that. But then I heard Aretha Franklin, I Say a Little Prayer, and still to this day, the thing that drives me initially on when I hear a record is melody mm-hmm. and the song, for want of a better word. Um, um, so this was one of the... I think actually my mother bought it rather than me buying it because it wasn't the first record I bought, which we'll no doubt come on to. And uh, I just remember playing it and playing it. And I just, to this day, I just absolutely adore it. And I think um, her, she's the greatest female vocalist ever. Um, the, I don't know if you've seen the Kennedy Street thing where mm-hmm. she sings for Carole King, which is just awesome. She's it's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's just one of the most jaw-dropping moments yeah. when, she, when she takes that fur coat off yeah. and, st- and she's still belting it out. And Obviously, it wasn't that long before she died, unfortunately. Effortless as well. Effortless, yes. Um, obviously, when she when she passed last year, it was last year, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. And uh, yeah. The, the, obviously, everybody's sharing videos and, 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 and stuff on the social medias and, and, and obviously... Everybody then goes back and listens to all them songs that, that yeah. you know, them performances by Aretha Franklin. And I just sat there and, I, and like everybody else, I was just playing and playing and playing Aretha records and and just watching these performances. And it don't even look like she's trying. No, the, the you know, I don't want to get all spiritual and say that some people are just blessed with something, mm. but she was blessed with yeah. something because that. That vocal is, is just otherworldly. It's yeah. absolutely incredible. Yeah. And you see other singers just pushing and pushing and pushing to reach these notes and to and to, to have such emotion in their voice. And yeah. Just, no, it's just amazing. Yeah. There's one yeah. clip, I don't know if you've seen it, There's because when they used to come over and play, they weren't allowed to mime in those days. They yeah. had to, they, and the BBC Orchestra would play. And she, there is a live version of I Say Little Prayer, and I think it's on the Cliff Richards show. Yeah. And you're re- listening to it and go, yeah, it sounds quite... Oh, my God, it's live. And you yeah. see that the backing, three backing girls are definitely singing because yeah. they're singing it slightly differently. That's right. And you're right, it was just totally effortless. And you can imagine, uh, you know, turning up in those days and, well, we've, got, we've worked out the arrangement missed you think you could be all right and they're just yeah. just dealing with it yeah know? yeah and and and, and last half a, a shout out to the to the listeners to go on on youtube and watch that performance um that that she does with carol king yeah. because that's that's a jaw-dropping yeah performance absolutely absolutely <laughs> so where was you born i was born in portsmouth okay um a naval town uh, I got I got out as fast as I could. Why's that? But, well, because it was a naval town. It was a sort of, I mean, it was the you know I left in seventy two. I mean, my parents were still there, but if you were growing up and you were growing your hair long in those days, it was not a place to be because right. all the squaddies and all the sailors would all give you grief. Yeah, they were also, of course, obviously a source of. Um, Cannabis and things like that yeah. at the time, which was also a good thing. Yeah, uh, but um, you know, it was it was it was could be dodgy. Yeah. So it, I wanted to go to somewhere else a bit more cosmopolitan, and okay. uh, you know, I went to a a school with seven hundred boys, 
Uh, there certainly wasn't anyone of colour at that school. Yeah. Um, as far as, no, I'm, I'm, no, no, there wasn't. You know, yeah. Not even as a, 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 I don't know, there just wasn't anyone. So they, it was it was quite, uh, Portsmouth was, was, well, very white, mm. I suppose. Uh I mean, the music scene wasn't bad there, but, but the places in the bigger places, the bigger um, towns and cities, of course, had more variety. Oh, cool. When going to Birmingham, they got more tours, places yeah. that wouldn't go to Portsmouth. So I wanted to get out. Um, but even at home, like gr- growing up, and, and you said there, you know, th- there was music scenes floating about. What about indoors? Was there music on at home? There was a bit. There wasn't much. I mean, my dad was very... I mean, he used to like to dance, but he would not He would never buy records. And my mother bought Adam Faith. She grew up on liking Adam Faith and then the Beatles. But there was a, a family who moved in two doors down and they had all the Beatles albums. And uh, they'd moved from London. They were doctors. And they... We used to go, I used to go around there with their son and just listen to Burt Beatles albums all the time because they had a nice yeah. gramophone and things like that. And that's where it all sort of started for me, I think. Just And then I used to drum along with knives and forks and things, yeah. <laughs> things like that. You, know? you, 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 you felt a sort of a, a thirst for music already. Oh, yes, yeah. But my grandfather was a musician, but he was the only one really in the in the family. Yeah. Uh, and I just it, then we just became, as I'm sure it's for everyone. It just becomes voracious. You just want to hear everything, yeah. anything you can find. You yeah. Know? And so yeah, so that was a. But before we move on, we, we, we've touched on school and that. We, we, we'll, we'll go there in a second. But mm. um, I just want to ask you when you say that Aretha Franklin's "A Sad Prayer" it was the first one that had an emotional impact on you. Emotional mm. was in in what? Um, I think it's just the. Uh, well, the expression of love in it, I suppose, yeah. isn't it? You know, and at the time, you know, going to a... I always say that, you know, I was brought up as a typically repressed British male, and I'm yeah. sure I was, you know. People didn't talk about emotions. And, yeah. You know, I had grandparents who'd been in the well, been in the war and all that, and my parents had been... You know, and then you just... Things weren't discussed, yeah. you know, so there was always that. And to hear someone such a naked... Um, uh, well, yeah, just the song of it, the emotion yeah. of it, I suppose. So you could live out those those yeah. emotions through uh, yeah, through someone think, else. What's yeah, what's that doing to me? All right, well, um, track three then, the song that reminds you of your time at school. Uh, what, I remember what I put down there. Uh, ten years after I'm gone. Oh, yes, ten years after, yeah. Well, so we we bought Sergeant Pepper when it came out. One of us did. The lot I hang around, hang around with Clive, I think it was. So we're talking secondary school here. We're we're talking. We were just at. We we I'd grown up on this new housing estate, uh, so I went to the grammar school. The other two two of the guys I was we went to the secondary school, uh, but we still we were still a group and uh, hanging around together. Uh, so that that summer, '67, Clive bought Sergeant Pepper, and we played that record to death. Uh, and at the time, you know, that, that was the beginnings of Pirate Radio was on. Well, Caroline, Caroline, uh, Radio, yeah, and Radio London. Clive yeah. had an older brother who was into the Who, and he had Doors records and things yeah. like that. You know, it was just fantastic. So, 
and then I went to school, and we we still we were still big mates. But then we started to go to gigs. Yeah, uh, Portsmouth Guildhall had quite a lot of shows on Southbridge Pier. Uh, but for some reason, Clive Clive definitely bought a Ten Years After album, and we got into Ten, ten Years After. And of course, at the time, at that age, at thirteen, fourteen, playing really, really fast was really important. And of course, later you realise it wasn't actually that important. But we did go and see Ten Years After a lot, a lot. And yeah. so we'd seen. Uh, uh, we went to Southampton to see them. Got the last train back uh, quite a few times. Um, and then, of course, Woodstock came out, uh, the film, in 1970, and uh, we'd always been into them, so they were sort of, you know, maybe like our group or group yeah. we were all into. <laughs> well, that was the one for us. And yeah. so we, uh, then we saw them at the, because we lived just over the, uh, oh, sure, ferry ride, we, we went to the, both the 69 and 70 Isle of Whites, and, of course, they they were on the Isle wow. of Wight bill playing, playing, and I'm, yeah, uh, I'm going home and all the rest yeah. of it, which was, of course, by then was just. Uh, it made them. If any, if anyone came out of that, that performances of Woodstock, I think it was them. It was probably Joe Cocker. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it was Ob Hendrix, but it was it was because also by then he died in in September seventy. Yeah. Um, it was almost like a postscript as well to him. Sure. Unfortunately, you know, it was the, the the way that that he did that show. So. Just, I've never really spoke to anyone that's been to these sort of shows, and and and, and obviously you said in you know you, you bought peppers when it come out and right. that. Like, was you aware at, even at that point that what you was listening to was genre defining and, and changing and pushing barriers and was like nothing before it? I think no. I think is the honest answer. Was it pop music? Or it was, was it? pop music. You know, it was obviously. A step on from what they'd done before. I mean, and obviously, you know, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, LSD. Yeah. You know, we were 13. We weren't, we weren't taking, we weren't doing anything at that time. I don't think I smoked a joint until I was about 15, probably. Yeah, Maybe, yeah something like that, yeah. Um, but, you know, it was in, it was in the... It was in the air, wasn't it? Because 68 was the whole revolutionary year. So it was all of this stuff going on, and it was only when you looked back on it that you realised how ground-changing it was, I think. Um, You know, because if you think about it, when it came out later, you know, we'll talk about my first single, but Oh Bloody, Oh Blada, which was a Beatles song by Marmalade, was pretty much just a a bubblegum poppy record, wasn't it? Yeah. Effectively, it wasn't... It wasn't uh, well. It didn't have a George Martin production, and obviously yeah. he was the man who went. Have you ever heard of a harpsichord or yeah. whatever? And added all those things to it. Yeah. Um, but no, I think it was. Uh, I think I'm. I'm. I'm someone. I'm very much a non-analytical person in that way. I'll listen to something and just go, "Oh, I think that's fantastic," or yeah. "Oh, I think it's rubbish," and then it was only later. It's, you know, it's like the collision. The one I always say to people is if you go like, much later on when ABBA came mm-hmm. out, and people was going, oh, ABBA, oh, bloody pop music. And Pete Waterman, once, uh, this was much later, I heard him say to someone else, and I sort of half realised it without actually analysing it. He said, Have you heard Take a Chance on Me? 
Have you actually listened to it? Listen to everything that's going on in that track. Yeah. And it's it's mind blowing. Yeah. You know, like some of the, it wasn't just four blokes playing in a room, it's just it was layers yeah. and layers of yeah. of her work. Yeah. You know, it's so. arguably the best the finest crafted pop music ever. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's why it's. Uh, I didn't really think about things like that, I don't yeah. think, until later, then you look back but, upon but it. But do you, th- do you think people ever do? Do you think, like, because j- just looking at, thinking about some of the, the, the scenes that maybe, you know, I've experienced, whether that be acid house, whether that be yes. hip-hop <laughs> or... Or, or Britpop grunge, like at the time, it, you just think, "Oh, this is all good," but you don't. Uh, people always look back more fondly, don't they? And 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 then by then, the critics get hold of it and 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 look back and say, "This was genre defining. This was a moment yes. that." And you know, I know people that have, have, you know, that were at the Stone Roses, Spike Island gig, and it was so shit. Like, couldn't <laughs> hear it, and like, but obviously, you know, it's never written about. You know, it's obviously this landmark event, yeah. and you know, but, uh, and so that's why I was quite interested to sort of get your take on on Peppers and Woodstock and and and, and the Isle of Wight festivals yeah. you mentioned. You know, what was that something that you know that was like, wow, we are, you know, this is like a, a moon landing in music. Do you know what I mean? This is a moment. Uh, well, I think they all again the Isle of Wight. Well, I went to Bath as well that year. Bath, you know what I mean? But the, the Isle of Wight was... Um, the people who were hits of the Isle of Wight, who really got through to the crowd, were people like Free had just had All Right Now yeah. all summer, you know. And, of course, they came out and played that, and the entire place went yeah. nuts because it what everyone knew. I didn't yeah. know what Mars Davis was about at that point. Yeah. Or Leonard Cohen, yeah. really. I'd heard Suzanne, but yeah. it was not something that... Move me and Joni Mitchell getting upset. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, someone's getting upset. Yeah. What's that then? What's the matter with her? Yeah. Oh, she's 100 yards away. Yeah. I don't really know what's going on here. Yeah. And then sleeping and waking up and going, oh, look, oh, Hendrix is on. Oh, better stand up for a while and listen yeah. to this, but not too long. Yeah. You know, which was just un- unfortunate, you know. Yeah. But so. But it's never looked back on and discussed as that, is it? It's always no, looked it's back not. on that, you know. Because you couldn't, it went on practically non-stop for five yeah. days. You couldn't be awake for all yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and just uh, people who became successful out of those shows. I mean, out of the Who at Woodstock. Yeah. You know, I think, didn't they go on, what, just after it had rained That's all right. day or something? And you can imagine anyone would be, yeah. anyone would go, oh, please, I can take my thing off. And, yeah. Stand up after 15 hours of torrential rain, yeah. and anyone would be welcomed. I think that's a bit unfair to them, but because they were fantastic, yeah. But, um, 15 hours of rain is going to piss you off, though, it isn't is it? Piss you off. <laughs> so, we went to the first Isle of Wight, and we went to the first Isle of Wight to see the Who, yeah, because Tommy had just come out as yeah. well. So, that was what I remember. We weren't allowed to stay for the second day for Dylan and that. And, and to be honest, I wasn't really into Dylan at the time. Mm. So it wasn't, wasn't too much of a... We were allowed to go for one day when we were 15, and that was we were thankful for going to that. Yeah. And the Who were fantastic. Yeah. And the Moody Blues as well were also really good as well, strangely enough. Not strangely enough, it's unfair. But, you know. Well, before we get on to the next track, let's, <laughs> if we can pick back up on, on your journey in Virgin. Yeah. So you've now gone to Hull and you're managing the store. No, I wasn't manager. No, no, I was assistant manager. Then. Assistant manager, but sorry. I was learning. Yeah, from the woman who ran it. It was a Geordie. It was very, okay. very good. 
So was you at this point thinking, I want to kind of keep my career here, I want to see where I can take this, or was you, was you, in, was you sure you wanted to work in music? I knew that I enjoyed what I was doing. My mum had been a bookseller. She had a bookshop, so I sort of knew. I, could, I remember her coming, being pleased when she sold things. Um, so that customer ethos, you know. And I, I gradually got into it, but I also, it was also immediately in, uh, starting to question things because there were, uh, there were new systems at the time because up to that point you hadn't had any self-service stores or very, very few, but we, Virgin, had, did have self-service stores, had started with um, Virgin Marble Arch either that year, 75 or the year before, and had security tags in shrink wrap albums and it was a difference, you know, and the way you ordered the records was different because when you had a counter service store, you knew what you'd sold because it wouldn't yeah. be left mm -hmm. behind the counter. Mm -hmm. But when it was live and that, it was different. So, yeah. so immediately I was sitting there going, well, hang on, this system doesn't really work. Surely there's got to be a better way of doing it. So I was beginning to question things already. Uh, and that's what, I mean, to be honest, that's what Virgin was about, my whole career at Virgin was because, and that came from Branson, he just questioned things from people, and other people just said, well, why don't we do it, why do we do it like this? Mm. It's rubbish, it doesn't work. Um, so, I think, uh, yeah, I think uh, when, when management, in inverted commas, came, and you, I would ask sort of spiky questions of them. Well, why do we do this? And why are we all getting paid the same again? I'm said to be working here like six days a week and a bit extra, but I don't get any more money for it. And, but, that, you know, it was a time because Virgin had been mm. a very hippie ethos, let, yeah. we're all on the same wage for until relatively recently before that. Yeah. So it was, it was, uh, it was a time of change, a great change. Uh, it was a time of change in retail because the, the, uh, the, uh, the self-service thing had come out, the discounting thing had come out, which Virgin pretty much started. So uh, the, you were about to start seeing the price wars start because eventually all the, the other chains started coming in and, oh, we're knocking 20p off. Oh, that lockdown, yeah. a bunch of hippies down the road are doing 50p off. Yeah. Uh, so it was, it, was, it was a time of change. And uh, so you, you asking spiky questions and things like that. and kind Well, of, you got noticed. And so was that uh, Branson... <laughs> yeah. Well, so six months later, uh, I mean, I, I wrote in my, I had a diary at the time, and I wrote in my diary after I'd been there three months that Laura, the boss, says I'm going to have my own shop soon. And to be honest, what was happening, well, there was a big, quite a big turnover in staff because uh, there was, it, it was the time when also the, the retail had been going for four years, five years, and it was just about when the rules started to come in, you know, the... Um, you must cash up the till every day, not once a week, because finding out you were 100 quid short at the end of a week when you'd only take the 1,000 quid was not a good idea. Sure. You needed to try and find out earlier. Just just normal retail disciplines that up yeah. to that point were anathema to everyone. So, so those things started to come in. And then um, they'd opened um, Marble Arch, which was the first big store, uh, and was doing very well. And then the, they opened, they were going to open a superstore, as it was called, in Birmingham. And I was invited to go back to Birmingham as the assistant manager, but more importantly, the buyer, the one who bought all the albums, to go and uh, open that store, which is what I did only six months after I joined. So that was February 76. Wow. So that was all, that was all right. And then obviously, 
And, and you know, I have to be totally honest, everyone at the time, from the top of the company to the bottom, was making it up as they went along. Yeah. There weren't, there weren't any rules. Was you and, driven, though? Uh, was I? Driven. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I just... Because, I'd, you know, I'd been at university and spent all my time uh, booking gigs. Right, I was there almost... That's the first thing I did student-wise, to go and join the ENTS committee. Because mm. I'd put a gig on at school, you know, and think so... It was what I liked doing. Yeah. Hello. I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry, it won't take a sec. All I want to say is, the songs that we're talking about in this podcast, if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So, When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you want to hear the songs, just go over to Spotify and search Off The Beat and Track Podcast and you can listen to all the songs because I've put playlists up for each of these. If you can't find it on there, I'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode. So you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks. Anyway, I'll shut up, get back to the podcast. See you on the other side. And then you started to realise that, as I said, that people at Virgin didn't know what they were doing. But it was the same with, I guess, with all the promoters that were coming up at the time, like Mm -hmm. Harvey Goldsmith and Mm -hmm. those sorts of people were suddenly booking football stadiums to put the Who on. And yeah. I went to the Who at, when was it? Was that 76, 5, 6, at Charlton? And it was it was frightening when everyone left. There was no thought of crowd control. Yeah. It was frightening. It was yeah. a huge crush. Um, and so that, that was evolving. All these things were evolving yeah. at the same time. So it was... Uh, so if you if you had ideas and they worked out well you were noted and said oh he's had an idea 
Anyway, so I worked at Birmingham for six months and we established it and we, we learned and we changed it as it went along. And the manager was driving me nuts. Because he was, what was he like? I don't know, he was a bit... He had, he had his own rules and he wanted to stick to them and I didn't want to stick to them. I didn't like being told that I had to do X, Y. I wanted to... So if, if you had a record, if you had um, a record coming, we were self-service, a new release, I wanted 25 on the counter right that instant when the security yeah. delivered it. He wanted them taken upstairs and shrink-wrapped in the security tape put yeah. in and priced and then put... And I, no, no, now, on the, on the desk. And start sell, playing it, start yeah. selling it. You know, yeah. but, so... Um, it got to the point that I went on holiday and I rang the the uh, MD and I said, I can't stand this anymore. I cannot stand working with this guy. I've got, I'm, if, when I come back off holiday, you've got to find me something else to do or I'm going to leave because I just, I can't come to work. And he found me a job uh, which was uh, running Virgin Manchester, which was 76. I'd seen the Sex Pistols in Birmingham in July and gone, what the fuck was that? Hair down to here, like the Eagles, or like Zeppelin or whatever. Yeah. But that was just like, <laughs> what did I just see? I have no no comprehension. No, Again, one of the moments, where, moments. Where, where people look back and go, oh, you know, to have been there and seen that. And for most people, quite underwhelming if, if they were, you know, honest as you, well. Well, yeah, it was, it was. I didn't know what to make of it at all. Yeah. Uh, and then went to Manchester, uh, and then of course it was all happening. Yeah, it was just the the Sepers was played there, of course, the free trade hall. Yeah. Um, and then the Buzzcock single came out, which uh, uh, we were the first shop to stock it. I think Spiral Scratch. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and then uh, the story you may have seen, which is that then they ran out of stock. They made a thousand. They borrowed all the money. They made it. So this was just after Christmas, I think, 77. And um, Anarchy had come out, and the Sex Pistols had been dropped. Uh, and Richard Boone, the manager, came in one day, and I said, Where's, I need more stock. We're selling loads of this. And he went, they're all gone. I said, well, where are they? He said, well, there's this company, Rough Trade, in London. They've got a load. And I said, well, make some more. And he said, um, well, I can't. I haven't got any money. And you... When you, when you, he said, you give me cash, but when I give the track with the rough trade, they sell them, and I don't get the money until 30 days from the end of that month, and I'm gone, so I can't pay for any more pressing because they want cash. And I said, how much do you want? And he said, well, to do another thousand, it's going to cost 600 quid, which is what it cost at the time, and we'd run all these coaches to gigs, because that's another thing I always used to, we, all the Virgin Shops did. So I, I wrote him out a cheque for 600 quid and said, there, go and press 1,000. The deal is I get the first 100 to sell in the shop. And he went, are you sure? And I said, yeah, do it. Pay me back when you can. Because we, we running coaches, as everyone later discovered, was incredibly lucrative. Mm. And, of course, it was not part of Virgin, which caused other problems later on. When, and so so was, you bankrolled the, the next pressing. The next pressing. Spiral scratch. <laughs> spiral scratch. Fucking hell. It was crazy. It was just crazy. And it was some running coaches to see the Pink Floyd and status quo. The anti-punk. So, the anti so they, they are, they are, they, their gigs finance the repressing of Spiral Scratch. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious. I mean, you couldn't have really picked a more exciting place to be at that, the, the Manchester in, at that time, right? I think that was the best year of my life. 
Really? Work-wise. It was, it was cra absolutely crazy. It was, so we were up and down to the Electric Circus seeing all these punk bands. Uh, we would walk up to the Electric Circus. A, a punk bit you by then and you got it? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah at that yeah. point. Yeah. And then White Riot came out and things like that. And it was like, whoa, what is this? Mm. Um, and we became the shop, uh, not only in Manchester, but in a lot of the Northwest. We had all these singles, tracks, albums at times. Um, and we would go to the Electric Circus, me and the assistant manager, with hair down to our waist. And as we would walk down the road, you could, you'd hear this, hippies, and then and we'd get there and someone would go, they're the chaps of Virgin. They're all right. And then we'd go, oh, okay. And they let us, you know, we were allowed, because we sold the tickets. Yeah. You know? uh, so it was really such a strange time. Uh, so did you, did you get to... Meet the Buzzcocks and did, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, and, like, and so they yeah, were aware yeah, of what what, yeah. what you done. No, I've got a I've got a letter from Howard Devoto. That said, oh, Thank amazing! You. Yeah. And then he formed magazine, of course, by putting the thing up in the shop. Wanted band into James Bond themes and something else. <laughs> oh, and it's like, why, why have you left? Because he, he'd left, didn't he? Leave? He left as Spiral Scratch came out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then he was like, why? Why? What are you doing? Yeah, and of course. I suppose it's, well, that was the first exposure, I hadn't really thought about that, to artists yeah. doing strange things. Yeah. Or things Why would you leave the Buzzcocks at that point? Buzzcocks? Yeah. And it's obviously, it wasn't right for him or, well, it wasn't because he went on to do different things. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, so it was, uh, it was different. And then, uh, and then, of course, the day comes that Cliff, the assistant manager, comes in and says, what, there's a bloke out there, he's got a cassette he wants to give to you. And I went, all right, who's he then? He said, well, I don't know, he comes in a few times. And this bloke gives me a cassette and it says Warsaw on it. Shut and that up. was Ian Curtis who gave me the, the Warsaw demos. I cannot find that cassette! <laughs> oh, <laughs> And he just said, do you want to have a listen to this? And he was really sort of shy and... Because they were, they were slaughtering the dogs who used to come into them, basically just a sort of rock band who jumped on the... But and people like that would come in because there was nowhere else to go. And what about Wilson? Was it was well, Tony Wilson used because he used to come and flog me on his promo. Yeah, of course, amazing. <laughs> I've met him one day. Just in this big voice going, "Where is this new manager?" <laughs> and I said, "Who's he?" Because I didn't know about. It. Yeah. So it goes or anything like that at the time. Yeah. And he just puts his box on the counter, and Cliff just sort of goes, "We buy his promos off him." Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, incredible! I met him, yeah. But yeah, so it was. Uh, it was just a fantastic year. And at the same time, we were selling. We were a tiny shop, and we were selling all the heavy metal imports from American crazy rock bands that you never heard of at the time, and Little Feet records early, and it, it was just a massive mixture. I, I didn't have a day off. I don't think I just worked. Uh, got horribly run down, were just partying. I mean, you know, when you had four nights of gig, four nights, you had to go to, go to the Pink Floyd four nights in a run to bring me all, yeah. because someone had to go with the coaches and good people always used to try and bunk on them and all yeah. of it. So I was going and getting back at one o'clock in the morning from two o'clock from Bingley Hall and had to be up and out in the shop the next day and doing all the normal stuff. So it was just a, a complete gas, you know, it's hilarious. Okay, well, we're going <laughs> to go back a little bit now, yeah. and 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 obviously, 
the first record you ever bought, John? Oh, embarrassment time. Isn't Doesn't it? matter. No, yeah, one, no one's ever said anything cool on this podcast. Well, the first record I ever bought was Yummy, Yummy, Yummy by the Ohio Express. <laughs> Is that Yummy, Yummy, Yummy? I've got love in my tummy. I've got love one. in my tummy. <laughs> The second one was Jumpin' Jack Flash. I oh, think. that's all right. But the first record I bought was that. I didn't know what cool meant at the time, of course. I just liked it. Yeah. It's a nursery rhyme. You know, and it's but like, that's cool, right? If you like it. If you like it, you like it. That was the first year. Where'd you buy it? I bought it in a little shop by the bus stop outside the theatre where they later filmed Tommy. Oh, amazing. In, I can't remember what it was called. It was a derelict theatre. Some, uh, a little, just by the Guildhall in mm-hmm. Portsmouth, yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to say now that the first record I ever bought mm. was now that's what I call music, the <laughs> first ever one. <laughs> oh, album. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the first album I ever bought was. And uh, it's only because it's a seamless link because it's something yeah, that I want to talk to you about. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, because... I, I guess we've moved forward a little bit from, from Manchester now and... and can we get to... How did we get to... How did we get to... Well, so uh, I, after Manchester, I moved to London, ran the new Oxford Street store, which was the precursor of the mega store. Then I became, because I had good stock knowledge, I became what was called the stock field manager for the, the chain. And I would... It was the days of when we were beginning to have um, stock lists. Because up to that point, everyone ran every shot on their own. They did exactly what they wanted. Um, if, if they didn't, of course, there were shops who, at that point who hadn't sold singles, mm-hmm. who didn't like selling singles. That's not, we don't do singles, don't be ridiculous, we sell yeah. albums. Um, so we introduced stock lists and things like that, and then I, I would, and then, you know, then you found out records that other people sold. So I would walk into a shop one day and I was like, what's this? And it was, uh, I can still remember the catalogue number, no, can I? Yeah, ACL double one five eight, which was on DRAM, which was the hot club for five. Of Django Reinhardt, and I said to someone, "Why have you got this?" And they said, "Well, it sells." I thought, really? And it does, and it did, and it, it did. I used to put yeah. it on all the stock lists. And everyone go, "Why do you want to stop that?" Because it sells, and it does, and it yeah. did forever. Just things like that, you know. And in, in Birmingham, apart from all the uh, all the um, punk records we had we used to sell a copy of the stripper david rose orchestra because every time someone became a dj they wanted that record obviously yeah because someone would always ask for it yeah and so you would stock records like that just staff records old yeah. oldies yeah, yeah 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 just things so so i i got a big stock knowledge and then i then my job was to zoom all around the country trying to improve the stock ratio, stock in all the shops, get rid of overstocks, move them about and do stuff like that. So I went up in the head office until I got to, um, then I helped the guy who did all the marketing, Pete Stone and things like that, about what we were going to advertise, what we were going to discount. And then I got there in 81 and I got a bit bored. And um, uh, I started looking for another job and I thought I should work in a record company. Now, we didn't have a very close relationship with the Virgin label at Virgin Retail because it's a bit like, you know, when you're, when you're in a family and someone says, you've got to love your yeah. brother, and it's like, yeah. why? Um, so we was, 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 was you and um, Richard Branson at this point, like, familiar with each other? Yes. And, yeah, uh, I think we were, yeah. Well, he yeah. was, yeah. Um, 
yeah, well, it became more so when I got to the label, I think. But retail was a bit of an issue, was a problem, because it, it never really made a lot of money, or much money at all. Really? No. Retail, look at all the ones that have gone bust. Yeah, of they course. They don't of course. very much a lot of the time. Um, so the labour were always propping the, the retail up. I didn't really know this at the time. Um, but anyway, I was, I, I was applying for another, looking at product manager jobs at record companies, I suppose. I didn't really know what they did. But I thought I could have a go at it. And then Nick Powell, who was Brant's partner, he because he was I knew him better because he he uh, he was the day to day person of the two of them who yeah. looked after Richard. Richard was very involved, very um, aware of of the that the chain was the was the, the on the high street, the, sure. the, the what where people heard the name Virgin mm-hmm. more than more than just from records. Um, so he. Uh, Anyway, Riddick Powell rang me up and said, "Why are you, are you looking for other jobs? I said, yeah. He said, why? I said, I'm fed up with it. I'm bored. I want to do something else. He said, what do you want to do? I said, uh, I'll be sales manager at the label then. And the only reason being because the salespeople at the label never talked to us. It was like records were coming out by magic from the label. Yeah. And you think, you know, and they just, because so, we distributed them through our warehouse. So what would happen is they, uh, you know, they come in and go, oh, this week, oh, we've got a new Tangerine Dream album. And the chap who was, would then survey out the stores to say, well, how many do you want? And then he'd be like, like it was an American input, like yeah. it had nothing to do with us. So um, we um, we didn't have much of a relationship. I said, I want to be sales manager at the label. So I went, and three weeks later, I was. And so there was Anne Kelly, who was the sales manager, became the sales director. And I started, and it was like... Uh, what do I do now then? <laughs> and all these reps and the world of um, marketing in inverted commas singles in the chart, which of course at the time that was just the time just after the World in Action program had been on about chart hyping, right? And also, so all, what year is this? Seventy. So that well, the World in Action thing was eighty, I think. Okay. So I wanted to leave in eighty one. And I started at the label in uh, September 81. And so what was going on at Virgin Records in 81? What was the big... Who, who was on the label that was sort of well, doing stuff in 81? Well, what had happened is so we'd had Oldfield at the beginning. Yeah. Our other big seller was Tangerine Dream. It was yep. well done there. And there was lots and lots of weird stuff, off-the-wall stuff, Gong, Ivor Cutler, yep. Henry Cow, people like that. But I imagine Shubler Bells had bankrolled a lot of this. Shubler, uh, Mark Oldfield had bankrolled yeah. an awful lot of it. Uh, and then, of course, we had signed in early, in late 1980, um, a drummer of a prog rock band who was Phil Collins. That's right. But we only had him for the UK. They wouldn't, he, the manager wouldn't let us have it for anywhere else. Um, and it was, uh, at, the, at that point, the label was seen as sort of quirky, but we'd, we'd had a lot of bands who were starting to come through. Um, and to be honest, they, I think they all hit their commercial side and stride at that point. The Human League had had reproduction and travelogue, but then the rest of them left and formed Devon 17, mm-hmm. and that's when Philip got the girls in, yeah. and then with Martin Russian made... Dare made a fantastic. Yeah. So eighty one, we had Phil Collins at the beginning in the air tonight, uh, and there was a period in eighty one. I was because I've looked at it, researched for my book. There was a week where we had nothing in the charts, nothing. I don't apart from the Phil Collins album, 
Gillen had been, and we'd signed as a, that had been quite successful. But there was one week when there was nothing in the charts in August. And then, <laughs> this, this sounds like the wrong way. Like, then I joined in September, just as, just as Japan were finally beginning to happen, OMD were beginning to happen with architecture reality, Simple Minds were beginning to happen. Uh, the Human League had happened, that, all that through that summer, but there was that one week when nothing was in the chart. Uh, and suddenly, this wave just took us through to Christmas, and then Don't You Want Me came out and went to number one, which was Virgin's first ever number one. And life was good. <laughs> it was... Uh... So, I mean, a couple of the acts that you've mentioned there, I can tell you that well, for definite... On now, that's what I call music. Oh yes, the first one, yeah. Um, well, no, they went, that was until '83. You see, there was yeah. Keep feeling fascination by the Human League. Yes, yeah. Can't hurry love by Collins. I could tell you the entire <laughs> track list. That album, John, like changed my life, and purely because it set the course for me for being a, an anorak. Because oh, yeah, yeah. it was gatefold. Yep. And so I could see what these people looked like. Yep. And I could read the chart placings. I could Which read a little bit. insisted on doing. Amazing. Yeah. And, and a little bit of information on it. Yeah. And it was cool. like, I could, oh, yeah. Um, well, I'll let you get back on with the story because uh, it, it was well, an absolute game changer, so that album, for me. 83 came about um, and we were the, we ended up being the top singles label in the country jointly with CBS. There was a big story about that, which I won't go into. But, um, um, all the all the all the uh, KTL and Ronco and Arcade were licensing all our wanted all our hits, and were they putting out like chart? They hits were putting and out things like, like yeah, that. hot one, yeah, just yeah. horrible things with black and white sleeves and no information, and and some always some filler on there because record companies said, well, yeah, you can have our hot hits, but we want the other ones that got forty five as well because it was a way of making money back. Yeah. Um, so Stephen Navin, who was our legal and business affairs, and I had a conversation, which was like, well, he said, this is getting so complicated. Cato want eight tracks, and so-and-so want nine tracks, and they're offering, they put the money up now, and they want an exclusive on this. And, and I said, what are we going to do? And one of us, and we both claim it was the other, the person, so him, one of us said, why don't we do this ourselves? And we literally got a, a, an old envelope out of the bin and we did some numbers and went, oh, my God, <laughs> this could be really interesting. So that's what we did. And then we went to EMI, which was, uh, the uh, I think, our distributor at the time, and they had lots of hits. And we said, why can't we, should we do this? Can we make a compilation series together? And then we got the name off the poster in Simon Draper's office, which was the Danish bacon poster from 1935, I think, of a pig and a chicken. Now that's what, yep. looking at each other, yep. egg and bacon for breakfast. And we just made it happen. And uh, Richard was the one, because we couldn't get gatefold sleeves manufactured. All the time there were just hurdles. And we just, in typical virgin fashion, we just jumped over them. So it? so why why the gatefold sleeve? Because I, I've also got a chart hits 83. I don't know who put that out, maybe KTL or something like that. But that just come on two separate vinyls. Like, well, because we just well, wanted it to be classy. Was, yeah, exactly. So, all, so once we had got EMI involved, we, we then was we, you driving this? Well, I, I was given it to drive because yeah. after Simon Draper, who was my boss, our boss, 
got involved, and then Richard heard about it, and he got involved, and then Ken Berry got involved, because he did the deal with EMI, the, the back, but he, Ken was the money man, and the, um, so we, and then we, we ended up dangerously like a committee, and if you want anything done in this business, you do not form a committee, but uh, I was the person who had given the project to, because Stephen, Stephen, that's not what Stephen did, I was marketing and sales and things like that, so... I was the one who went, we got a, a graphic designer and we went down, there was a machine called a Cytex machine. It was literally the size of a double-decker bus. And that did was what, to graphic design, what an app iMac is today. But they, it was brand new, it had never been done. And we designed it over a weekend on that machine and it meant you could move the pictures about without actually just getting transparencies and yeah. doing that, until we had something that we could work with and all the time we said well we're going to do it properly let's do it right we did not think it was going to be a brand or anything like we weren't thinking beyond this record let's make it look good and and uh, and then it came out and it went crazy yeah how many did that sell the first one we did a million in four weeks which at the time was just unheard of that's crazy it was just it it was madness we were you know we were and they were on there as well Okay. And they were on there as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, you before you had two tracks on. As did Kajagoogoo. As did Kajagoogoo. <laughs> uh, and so it was just things like that, you know, and we just... Uh, Collins and Genesis were on there. They were both of them, that's all, by yep. Genesis, yeah. When Collins, of course, had been at the beginning of the year, that was the f- our first number, that was our number one, but that was the first, I think it was the first number one of the year mm. in 83. And we had all those hits all the way through the year. Uh, yeah. And so after that, of course, it was then, right, this is a bit, right, we better do volume two. And then we got, then, then it got a bit more hairy when EMI started getting corporate and wanting to, well, they wanted to own it, like, because they thought we were just a bunch of hippies down from this little office in Portobello Road. And we soon put them right on that. It was going yeah. to be 50-50. And, uh, uh and then they wanted Saatchi and Saatchi to do the sleeve, which the wide now too is so horrible, because they, they did one sleeve. And which one's two? What's that look like? It's, it's sort of black with a swirl over two or something. That's right, yeah, I remember. It's just, it's just, I'm not saying one was a masterpiece, but it was what it was. And then we went to another, we did a, got advertising agencies to pitch, and that's where we got a company called Inter, um, McCormick's. But even then, even then, you had people. I remember the creative director, Jerry Moira. You know, when creative directors get it's like, look, this is really, really simple. It's a lot of fucking hits yeah. on one record. Yeah. And it's got to look good and it's got to say what it is. And the TV ad has got to be full of the hits. We did later do one for an album called Now Dance, which had a practically naked woman writhing around on a double bed on silk sheets and and, and, yet, and imagining these videos swirling in it. It's like, no, it's it's a compilation of clips. That's what it is. Yeah. That's all you're telling people. That's what it says on the tin. But that's when the pig came in as the yep. voiceover, and that didn't last long because people, because he had a northern accent, and people did, it polarised people, the pig, so that pig lasted three, four, and five, 
and then we redesigned the sleeve, and then now, and then later on, uh, there was a company called Quick on the Draw who did it, and I mean they basically it was the same bloody sleeve in different colours yeah, yeah, for course. years, and it still is. Yeah. It just says now and the number on there yeah. in a different, slightly different colour every time. Because it doesn't matter. Everyone just yeah. buys it. Yeah. So that was now. <laughs> I got a new car. <laughs> I bet you did. Um, okay. Um, track five. Um, the song that soundtracked your clubbing years, John. Right, so I was in Hull. In 1975 into 1976, and you had student discos, and they did, but there was this pub where on Sunday nights they had an upstairs with an enlightened DJ, and you could go there, and it was just about dancing. It was not about being a pickup joint. You did not ask people to dance with you, you just danced. On your own or whatever. What year did you say this was? 76. Okay. And so this guy, whoever he was, would play long tracks. So this one, well, I'm just about to get to, but there was a group called Paladin, who were this prog band. And they had a track, which I, I don't think anyone's ever heard of, but this guy used to play it every week, and Doors tracks, and just not singles, not long tracks. And so uh, this track, um, give me some loving by traffic from the live album that they did. Welcome to the canteen, which is nine minutes long. And oh, I, I know I said it wasn't a pickup, but I did actually end up meeting someone there. Um, we she, she became my wife eventually, but but we didn't. It wasn't it wasn't done like that. We would collapse at the end because we it was so hot and sweaty, and and just go go home or whatever. Um, and it was just. It was a fantastic place. And so being up there around that time, did you, did you venture to, to Wigan? Did you, did you uh, ever, no, ever no. go and I explore? I was too busy working. Yeah. I went to Leeds for gigs. Yeah. Running coaches, of course. Oh, right, yeah, of course. Captain Someone's got to do it. Yeah, someone's <laughs> got to do it. I went to Free Trade Hall to see Emmylou Harris and think people there, because it was a fair old schlep, but you had to do it. Yeah. You know? We went to Newcastle to gigs, Bridlington, I think, status quo. I mean, there were some. I put a couple on in Hull at the time because I'd done that at university. We weren't very successful with it, but we did it. For a couple uh, of at the university? No, I put on Man, a group called Man, a prog band at the town hall. And me and Laura did it together. Uh, we, we lost a bit of money, but not a lot of money. That's promoting, right? That's promoting. <laughs> in the real world, at... at Outside of student finance, it's a lot more difficult than yeah, it looks. Yeah, yeah. I've, uh, I've lost a fair few shirts putting on bands. Don't worry about that. Yeah. Um, okay, so moving forwards. So where, where after, after the NAR uh, mm. um, thing has exploded, and, and so where, does, where is that putting your career and your placement a, a virgin at this point? Because well, uh, are you golden boy at this point? Um, I was, well... It, <laughs> It wasn't really one like that. I, I had been in, in charge of marketing. Uh, I was therefore made a director, made marketing director. But the guy who was the general manager, who sort of organised, like an operations person, mm -hmm. um, he moved over to run the publishing company, 
and I took his job as the general manager. And so my secretary had come with me from retail. She became like HR because we didn't do any. I mean, mm -hmm. we did nothing of that stuff, you know. None of the uh, appraisals, and mm. we, it was just, it was just different, you know. Getting on with it. People got, if you went good, you got fired. There wasn't. I mean, I went to an industrial tribunal. Yeah. You know, and it just well, we didn't fire many people. We just really got it right from the start. So, my job, what I loved, was selling records, <laughs> lots of records. I loved it. So, uh, what were some of your favourites that you you, you pushed that, and, and um, was loved you know, and was happy to see? Well, I, I I loved. I mean, there was a band called It Bites who polarised the company. Um, for, and, and to be honest, let's be honest, uh, Phil Collins and Genesis polarised the company because Genesis were... Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd liked Genesis in the early days, but then when Punk came along, I sort of lost a bit of interest. So that late 70s stuff with them, I just really just didn't, almost didn't take any notice. Of what was that? Was that then number three and stuff Duke, like that? then there were yeah. three, Abacab. I mean, the first foot, Wind and Wuthering, I really liked, but then after that, I sort of... You know, when there was so much music coming out, the, the thing is, you couldn't just go. I've got to listen to this immediately. You know, it's it's gonna seem boring if punks exploded, isn't yes. it? Yeah. And and then you've, I guess you've got the new romantic scene. You've got so yeah. many things that were so colourful and exciting that probably yeah. appealed more than blokes with long hair and beards playing yeah. fifteen minute synth solos. No, like. that's right. And a, and of course, um, you know, breaking acts. I mean, Simple Minds were the archetypal virgin band because they'd been let go by Arista, and we took them. I mean, that was before I arrived, but we it was soon got involved with them. They had their first hit in '82, "Promise You a Miracle," but we took them from almost nowhere to headlining Wembley Stadium well, in they, ten years, and, 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 they, and they were they were the they were the band that everyone in the company loved, and and, and they were. When you look at, at Simple Minds and you look at the early stuff, which was very electronic, that's right. And yeah. to, to, to fast forward to a stadium rock band, absolutely. And uh, and they wanted to be YouTube before YouTube knew they wanted to be a stadium rock band. I couldn't have put that there was better. A lot of, a, lots of rivalry, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so uh, there was them. Uh, but then we also we kept signing oddities. Um, Holger Zukai from Can. I remember right. working on one of his records, and he was a lovely guy, lovely guy. Uh, I reissued the Ivor Cutler albums because I, when I was working in the shops, Virgin had deleted them all, and I was going, and I, I, when I got a bit of power, which was when I, in, in a couple of years, it was like, I'd say, why are these records deleted? They don't sell. Well, they don't sell because they're not available. Well, they didn't sell. All right, well, I think they would still sell. And it was like, well, what do you know? You're the head of production. And I go, well, I think I know what I'm doing. So I would say, can I put this out again? And Simon Drake would go, yeah, whatever you like, basically. Yeah. And I was like, oh, can I? So you could indulge so some I, of your so passions so as I, well. Yeah, to put them out. And then because of that, he and I became friends. He yeah. came in one day because he was grateful for that he was, he was getting royalties. Again. Yeah, of course. Uh, so things like that were fun. I, loved, I mean, it was great working with Genesis for... A different reason, which was that the manager, Tony Smith, uh, I always say there are two sorts of managers, those who make you work for them and those who encourage you to work for them. And Bruce Finley, who managed Simple Minds, was an encourager. And Tony Smith used to scare the shit out of me. He, so, 
and he, he, he just kept you on your toes all the time. He would ring up and he would ask, you think, well, I've got all this covered, I know exactly what's going on. I, he can't ask me anything, I don't know the answer to it. And he'd come out with a question and I'd go, oh, for God's sake. But did you like that, though? <laughs> well, yes, it was challenging. Yeah. And he, because he had gone through, he was a promoter originally with his dad, John and Tony Smith, and he had been asked by Genesis to mention because the artists go to people they trust, and they, and he said no, and then he said no again, and then eventually the third time he said, all right, I'll give it a go. Yeah. So he had learned all the record company side. He yeah. knew how to do the live side, yeah. but he learned all the record company side, and you're still, years later, I remember saying to him when, uh, when digital happened, because we had Phil Collins for, we had him for the UK, Atlantic had him for the North America, and Warner's had him for the rest of the world. And of course, at that time, you suddenly you're in a worldwide market. And I remember saying to Tony Smith, uh, so with Phil Collins then, how does it work, the money flow, when you've got a track that could be bought from someone who's in Hungary, from a UK record company, but blah, 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 blah. How does that work? He went, fucked if I know. <laughs> <laughs> but he found out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because he was sitting there going, yeah, how does this work? Yeah. I need to find this I ain't thought about this. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's the same with, uh, you know, I mean, people, because I used to, I worked a lot with managers when I ran the music managers forum. And there was a saying, you know, I used to have to know five things. I now need to know 50 things. Yeah. And five things back in the 70s was get a record deal, get a publishing deal, get an agent, uh, buy a van and print some T-shirts. That's what you did. That's all you needed to know. It was live. It was, you know, that sort of covered it. Yeah. There was none of this PPL and PRS and all these other income streams at the time, you know. But they had to gradually know more, you know, v, American visas these days. Nightmare. You know, all those things that used to be falling off a log, they're not anymore. Yeah. And all of them digital, hardly it's everything. It's crazy. I've got, I know a manager who said, Tommy, if he goes to a gig, his manager's quite a big band. If he goes to a gig, he's got 37 questions he asks every promoter these days. And it starts with, what's the internet password? And goes down from yeah. that, you know. Are you recording this show? What are you doing with it? Are you doing this? How are people, you know, just, just things. What's the power? What's, you know, all the things you get in yeah. a, a tour directory or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, checklist. And he's one of those guys who is just really on it like that because he doesn't want the band to go, what's the internet password? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah. What do you mean you don't know? That's why you get fired for things like that. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So I'm going to, for your next track, um, ask you to pick a favourite song from an artist from your hometown. Mm. This is difficult. This is difficult because there weren't that many bands from Hampshire. Uh, Roger Hodgin from Supertramp came from Portsmouth. Uh, but this one I chose was uh, a guy called Paul Pond went to my school and then he changed his name to Paul Jones obviously before me, and then he joined Manfred Mann's Manfred Mann, which was, I think some, some of them were from Portsmouth, but Paul Jones definitely was. Mm -hmm. And so, um, 
And it all roads leads to Springsteen, if I haven't already mentioned that. And Springsteen always did a fantastic version of Pretty Flamingo. Oh, but really? He yeah. Live he did it. So, But at the same time, um, it's the, it was the British invasion, of course. And that's what shaped... What what what's what's up to a lot of American artists I think who came through at the time as we know because apart from Cream teaching the Americans all about their blues heritage mm-hmm. and a number of people doing that there was just lots of things that that I think the British bands in the in the invasion took to America and uh, that cross cultural stuff was was fascinating so yeah pretty flamingo Paul Jones I think it was almost his last single he did with them and it was number one in. Uh, 66, and it was, it's a great song. So, you've, you've spoken about, um, obviously, working bands, breaking bands, and, and, and obviously selling, selling records. Mm. Um, am I right in saying you was involved in Mercury Music Awards? Yes. So how did, how did that happen? That happened because... Uh, after Phil Collins' But Seriously came out and sold some ludicrous amount of... I think it sold three and a half million in a year. And we had a... The first time I did a barometer in reception because I put, kept filling it in every time we sold another 100,000. Which Cliff, my mate from Manchester, was then the driving version, used to put in an extra 100,000 sometimes and put great, the Grateful Dead albums or whatever, you know, just mickey-taking. Um, but that year, the Brit Awards, Phil won, didn't win Album of the Year, even though, it was, I'm not saying it has to be, but sales did account for a lot for it. Who won? I can't remember. It wasn't him, though. I know that. What year is this? I think it must, so it must have been 1990 or 89. Actually, I need to find that out. But um, uh, And I thought... Well, that's a bit odd. How did that happen then? And I got hold of someone who shouldn't have told me. I said, how does all this work then? And they said, well, it's, it's the BPI members, the companies, they vote for it. And I said, all right, so how many members are there? And they said, 150, all from the biggest to the smallest. And I said, all right, OK. Because I'd voted for it, I suppose, or someone at Virgin had. And I went, well, that's interesting. Cause and they went... Not many people actually vote. I said, really? They don't vote. No, they don't. And when I was there later, they didn't when they had that voting because then it's all changed. Yeah. They said, has only about 30 companies vote because they don't care. And I thought, oh, all right. And then someone else whispered in my ear, and do you know that Universal, or Polygram as it was called then, EMI is EMI, and they get a vote, and Universal have got themselves registered as five different labels. So they get five votes. And I'm sitting there ah, now I'm beginning, the, the scales are falling away. Yeah. And that's what they did. So they got, everyone gets a short list of five acts, which we call after the 30 or something, and then votes for them. And they had voted Phil Collins bottom in every single category to stop him winning. Oh, brilliant. And I thought, that's not very fair, is it? No. And then at the same time, I'd got back into buying novels uh, because much earlier in the 80s, there'd been a campaign by 
the book marketing council that said these are the best top 20 novelists in Britain, young novelists in Britain, and it made me get back into buying books. And I thought, I wonder if we could do something different from the Brits. It's a bit commercial. So I went, I was on the Brit, I was on the Brits committee at the time, the BPI council, and I went to them and they patted me on the head in a very patronising way and said, yeah, but you'll need lots of money for that job. And we won't get any sponsorship, will we? Because, you know, the charts are... The charts so you, always, you pitched an awards concept. Yeah, they're all yeah. a bit they're all a bit dodgy and no one will go near it. Like Coca-Cola and that. We've talked to them about the Brits and they're not interested because they're all a bit chart-hyping and all that. So they said, if you, if you can get a sponsor, I'm sure we can talk about it. So I spoke to my friend at HMV Retail because I knew that all the retailers... Were, were sort of shut out from all the decision-making process of the record industry, and they wanted to get in. So I went to my mate at HMV, David Tyrrell, and said, what do you think of this idea? And he went to his boss, and the boss of HMV was like, yeah, we can own this, or we can co-own this. This is our way in. So um, we then hired two guys to go and find us some sponsors, and they found us some sponsors in Mercury Communications. So we launched it, and before we launched it, I went back to the BPI and said, you know, we've uh, been off, you know, what I said, they said, yeah, yeah, I said, I got the sponsorship. And they were sort of dumbfounded, and I said, Mercury Communications, doesn't seem to be a problem with anyone. And o Morris Oberstein, nice Morris, came up to me and put his arm around me and said, John, we got to own this. And I said, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> The only way this is going to work is if it's independent, and it's seen to be independent. Well, how's, who's going to judge it then? I said, we'll find a bunch of, bunch of... We wanted to get artists, but artists, frankly, listening to 150 albums is tough. Anyone listening to 150 albums, you have to got to go to people who've got a reasonable idea of some of these, a lot of the records already. Mm. So um, that's what we did, and it worked. Um, and it just, again, another thing, it does what it says on the tin. Whatever you think of it, all it does, it, once a year, it makes people go, someone says, these are the 12 album, best albums of the year, I better check them out. And if that's all it does, that's all it does. Who won the first one? Uh, Primal Scream. Scream of Delica. Great record. Amazing record. Great record, yeah. Amazing record. Um, who else was in the running that year? Can you remember? Oh, on the first uh, first one, I think the Spice Girls were on there. No, no. I think the Spice Girls, the Spice Girls were on, or definitely nominated for one of them. Not that year. No, maybe not that year. Then, right? No, because it was too early. It was yeah. too early. It was too early. Yeah. Because the so point would that have been Stone Roses. Was that at no? No, that no, might be I don't the year think before. It was Stone Roses. Just trying to think. Thrills, pills, and belly aches might have been out that year. Happy Monday. Well, for start, right? So there was definitely. What became known as the token classical record, and that was John Taverner's The Protecting Veil. Right. There was definitely a token jazz record, as they used to call it as well, which I think was someone Barker, trumpet player. Okay. Oh, was was Blue Lines by Massive Attack out that year? Was that in the or did they win it the year after? All the lights have just gone out. Um They I don't think they won it. It, no, they were out in 91, weren't yeah. they? It was 91, Possibly. so it had, it had to be the calendar or the nine, 12 months too. Yeah. And the other, the other, see, one of the issues that always people always forget 
is that um, albums had to be entered. So sometimes there would be outcries about people, people not um, not being uh, not what not being on the shortlist when they hadn't been entered. Not everyone likes to be judged, you know. So therefore, there were some. There was one. I'm thinking of one particularly, which was um, George Michael's Faith, and he didn't want it in. Really? No. Not everyone. No. Well. Can you, if, if you don't win, are you a loser? You know, so there were, so that was, we obviously we, we didn't even give freebie entries to people. We just said, look, you haven't entered this. And yeah. There'd be shuffling of papers and people go, didn't want it in there. And so with the Mercury's, am I right in saying there was prize money given to the, 20 the band? Grand, 20 grand. And, uh, and I think, I think the first one I remember sort of realising was when Gomez won it. Was that 95? Yeah, it must six? have been 95 or 6, yeah. yeah. Uh, probably 6, actually. And then Oasis didn't win it. That's right. Uh, lots of people didn't win it. I'm trying uh, to think of other winners. M people win it? Yeah, M people. Well, that was the big controversial one, and that yeah. was because it was a tie. And uh, what's his name? Okay, chair of the judges said, I'm going to make a decision, and he gave it to them. Right. Was a which which year was that? So that was ninety three, I think. Yeah. So that was obviously controversial at the time. Yeah. Um, Van Morrison had one in the first year, I think. Okay. Um. Ronnie Sires. Well, that uh, he won it, didn't he? Yeah. So that was later. So that was what? F that might have been ninety four, five. Mm, I reckon five, maybe. Five. Yeah. See. At that time, you would you because of what you do would have been far more aware. You're much better at putting things in. Yeah, no, I was playing them in the clubs then. And, well, exactly, uh, and it was and it was and it was great to see sort of Gomez really and the, the, the you know these bands that weren't necessarily mainstream artists. You know that piggybacking yeah. them into becoming mainstream yeah. artists and 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 probably selling a bucket load more records as yeah. well. Well, even the jazz people, you know, they used to say, cool, we used to sell a thousand records and we've just sold 3,000. This is yeah. just a big step for us. Yeah. Um, and then there was very nearly, Norma Waterston, I think, very nearly won it in 94 or 5. And I remember talking to her afterwards and she said, I'm really glad just to be on the shortlist, quite frankly. Amazing. You know, and so well, that's what it was about because we wanted it to be these are the 12 best albums of the year and there just has to be, you had to have that one winner to make the TV show. Of course. Of course. You're not going to have a TV show because yeah. these are the 12 best albums yeah. of the year. Bowie, I think, oh, you 2 was in this. Acton Baby was in there. Oh, really? It's quite in, what was that, 93? Acton Baby, yeah, would oh maybe even earlier than that. Well, yeah, so around that time. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, well, it's um, it, again, it does what it says on the tin. Final track, John. It's your chance to be a show off and influence and <laughs> uh, and, and and play and play DJ and, uh, and and tell people about a record that they may not know. Right. So. Uh, where did I get? I bought this record in America. Why did I buy it? I don't know because it was uh, it was in it, it was I've got a second hand copy of it somewhere. It just had a great sleeve. I bought records for great sleeve. It was cheap at the time. When, when was the time? When was this? When did I? I so I went to America buying records when I in seventy 
six, seven, eight, something like that. And um, the reason I like this record particularly is, is, A, it's incredibly obscure. I might even have bought it in a co-op shop in Portsmouth because they did have cut, <laughs> cutouts, you know, American deletions. So, hang on a minute, you bought it in America. You was, you was making it sound like you had yeah, this sorry, uh, incredible yeah. experience that you bought it in a co-op well, in Portsmouth. Well, because there were. <laughs> I, bought, I definitely bought albums in the co-op shop for 30 pence, six yep. shillings, that were American, uh, being imported by record labels because they didn't want to bring yeah. in... And then they sold them off. So I definitely bought a Taj Mahal album. These were CBS records a lot, a lot. And a Moby Grape album, because at the time it's like, I'd never even seen these records. And I was just buying them. I thought, who's Taj Mahal? Yeah. I'll buy that, 36 shillings? Yeah. yeah. And I, it might have bought it then, because I know my mate of mine said he bought it then the same way. He, he, so I might have done. Um, but it's a band called Sot With Camel. And they only made two albums. Um, it's very Californian, laid back. It's very uh, smoking a joint on a summer's day. And the reason particularly I love it is that my, my, I've got a son who's 27, and I used to play it, and he loves it. And, he, you know, he loves it and, and play, has played it to his mates in the same way that we played Cut by a Thrill, which, yeah. of course, they all now love Steely Dan, that generation. Well, who doesn't? But... But he also loves this, and I just this track is just so laid back and so beautiful, and it's uh, yeah, the un, an undiscovered gem. Well, that will be on the Spotify playlist that accompanies this. So go and uh, and go and give that a listen. So, John, what, what what are you up to these days then? So these days, so I spent ten years running the Music Managers Forum, and I stopped doing that a couple of years ago. Uh, I was just I'd had. Uh, my boss at the time, it was one of my a boss, Brian Messiju, is one of the uh, Radiohead's managers. He believes I that... I met him last week for oh, the first you? time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's a great guy. We had a great partnership when I was the CEO and he was the chairman. And he, he says, organisations need change. Like, you can't just keep going around. You need to change them to refresh them. And I just thought, you know what? I'm getting to that time and I let's find someone new. And she was the woman who took, took over from me, Annabella Coldrick. She ran the ticketing campaign that, that that's helped change all the things about resale tickets and prices. And I would never have done that. I, I thought it was impossible. You couldn't get changed. Yeah. But she she came from a different background and she just took that issue and ran with it and really forced change. With, with a lot of other people's help, yeah. obviously, because we all have to do that. But, um, yeah, so... Um, Hey, what was the point of that? I can't remember. But anyway, so what am I doing? And then I, I've wanted to write this book. I wanted to write a book that captures what Virgin was like from its, the label start in 73 till we sold the label in 92 to EMI for a billion dollars. And at that time, I mean, Manchester in 76 was fantastic, but that time at the label, the halcyon days of when CDs came in and exploded and everyone was... Well, people like you were complaining about buying records for the second time, having to pay £11 for them or 15 quid, or whatever it was at the time. But um, it was fantastic. It was just, again, it was a, an utterly fantastic time of fighting to get CD capacity so you could put records out, because you couldn't sell them if you couldn't make them. So it was all that stuff. And it was just... The, the atmosphere at the company was brilliant. And we... And we we changed, we kept 
tearing out the rule book and kept coming up with new ideas and changing things. We put out the first CD single. Everyone thought we were completely insane. What was that? Uh, the first commercial CD single, well, I think, although it might have been a Maxi Priest one beforehand, was um, Land of Confusion, Genesis. Oh, really? Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And of course, at the time, they had all these chart rules. It wasn't, it wasn't eligible because no one had thought that anyone would do such a thing. We just said, it's a single. It doesn't say anywhere it's got to be made of plastic. It doesn't have to be made of polycarbonate. Doesn't say have to be, uh, go around at forty-five RPM, does it? In these rules, right? We got put in the single, and then they outlawed them for a while. Because, really? Because, well, because no one, no one else could get the capacity. They, they as, a, as a community, it was like we can't start making CD singles. We're about to fortune selling albums at twelve quid. Why would we make make sell CD singles for three ninety-nine? They outlawed them for a while, and then they brought them back in later. Bloody hell. <laughs> I, for one, I'm going to buy your book when it's out. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be lots more in that. John, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a lot um, of fun doing it. Thank re- you. Really enjoyed chatting, mate. It was really kind of you to make the effort to come down today as well. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you for and, having me. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye. There you have it. John Webster. As I said, you might not have known who he was, but I knew you'd enjoy that conversation because... What a life. Coming up with now that's what I call music. I mean, that's that's something that is... How many households in the UK will own a copy of a now that's what I call music compilation? Um, as mentioned, it was the first record I ever bought. Um, and the Mercury Music Awards. I mean... You know, it's just, just an absolute journey uh, of, of, you know full of drive, passion, and, and and that's what these podcasts are about. You know, just just hearing that creative journey and, 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 and obviously the songs that have soundtracked it. Thanks ever so much for listening. Like I say, there is a Patreon uh, account to accompany the weekly releases where you get other, uh, another release each week amongst other bits and pieces. So uh, if you enjoyed that, um, go and have a look over on the Patreon. Like I say, any... Any love and interest over there is much appreciated and really does help to facilitate uh, the podcast in general. Um, if you like this, go and have a look through the back catalogue because you will see episodes with the likes of, oh, blimey, uh, Alan McGee, um, blimey, Block Party, Scroobius Pip, Dan Lassac, the in between is James Buckley, Dom Jolly, Ian Lee, Colin Murray. Oh, the list goes on. So go and have a little look and a rummage around in the back catalogue. Um, always nice if you can head over and, and give us a, a like and a love and a share and, a, and, and subscribe and stuff like that. Um, yeah, you probably bored of my voice now, so I'm going to shut up. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. See you later, guys. Bye-bye. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I've butted in yet again. I just want to quickly tell you about this magazine. It's called Pod Bible. Now, Pod Bible is the new essential guide to podcasts. It's put together alongside Spotify and Acast, and it's a one-stop shop to tell you all about the podcasts you maybe know about, but definitely about a load of the podcasts that you probably don't know about that we think you should know about. I mean, in the first edition, there's interviews with Adam Buxton, interviews with Craig Parkinson. Um, there's features on Jade Adams and there's just 
an abundance of information about so many exciting podcasts that are out there. Also, Spotify have given us these amazing little codes. So if you do get a print copy, you can just turn on your Spotify on your phone, scan the little code, and it just automatically opens up the podcast on your listening device. How good's that? If you haven't managed to get a print copy, then just go over to www.podbiblemag.com and read it online because the digital version is all over there and it's all free. So every other month there'll be a new edition out. So go and have a look and support us on the social medias as well. Podbiblemag.com It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.